0: What is it about life that is the older you get, the more time you spend looking back? Well, we've found the same thing happens with podcasting. And as we've gotten better at this, and our audience has gotten bigger, some of you might not have heard or found our early episodes. As we near 150 episodes, it can be a bit of a pain in the backside to scroll that far back in your app. So we're revisiting some of our early favorites, slightly edited in a new regularly recurring series we call In Case You Missed It. Today, we're going to dive into Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. We have author Greg Renoff joining us. Welcome, Greg.
1: Thanks for having me on, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book and to uh, join this podcast.
0: So let me say from the outset, why a book on a world-famous band that actually ends when the band signs their first record contract? What intrigued you to write this?
1: I grew up a a huge fan of Van Halen. I mean, people will write books on bands and sometimes they sort of aren't big enthusiasts of it, but they think it's an interesting topic. It happened to be that I grew up a fan and I was one of those guys who read every guitar magazine front to back. I was a guitar player and obsessed with Eddie Van Halen, but I was one of these individuals who never quite got past the intermediate level, so I was never very good. But nonetheless, I was a big reader. Uh, Articles went back and went to grad school, ended up getting a PhD in history. And one of the things that I ended up being really interested in is the band's beginnings, when I would kind of go back and revisit my fandom of Van Halen, and I'd find that you could find a lot of information about the band's history post-1978, as you might imagine once they became famous. But there would be all these stories or clips of little interviews that you would see where one of the guys in the band would be talking about a backyard party or someone else would be talking about the Starwood and Gene Simmons. And they, I just got interested in the topic and kind of thinking about how did this band get started. And I decided I wanted to try to do a prehistory of the band and kind of try to take the approach that if you're a fan of Van Halen, you probably know enough about the main outlines of the band's history after 1978 that you probably think you know enough, or is the early period you didn't know as much. And to be honest with you, once I started to do the interviews, I did over 200 interviews for the book. I had so much material that I had to try to find a way so it wasn't 500 pages long. And so I decided to say, you know what, I'm just going to end it with their breakthrough. That's a high point. And it kind of that was the goal for those guys in 1976, obviously, was not to you know, not necessarily play stadiums, but it was to get the record deal and just just get on the map. And so that's what they had done. And uh, so that was why I stopped it there.
0: Well, it's a fascinating story. And as you mentioned, these backyard parties that the LA kids had during the period, they're just completely off the hook. It's a huge part of their story, don't you think?
1: You know, I think the thing I didn't really realize until I got into writing the book is that the backyard parties were in a lot of ways essential for those guys breaking through. Because in 1976, 1975, 1974, I mean, nobody outside of LA had ever heard of Van Halen but what ended up happening was that because Van Halen had gigged so extensively in and around Pasadena and the San Gabriel Valley, they play Altadena, they play Glendale, they play all these different cities in people's backyards or at high school dances. When they finally kind of had some momentum going, they were playing on the Sunset Strip. One of the things they ended up doing was they were playing at a place called the Pasadena Civic which is is still there uh, on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena. It was a kind of a general use building and they would have concerts there and they were working with little promoters and doing these shows. But what was happening was that they were able to draw 2,500, 3,000 people. And in fact, when Marshall Burrell, who was their first manager and then Ted Templeman and other people who were involved with getting the band signed to Warner brothers went to these concerts, they were just amazed that this unsigned band could attract 2,500 kids right in LA where You know, there were bands playing at uh, the Santa Monica Civic that were drawing half of that that had major label deals and stuff like that. So the groundwork that those guys did for years to build a following in Pasadena was, I think, really essential to getting people who were in the music industry right before Van Halen got signed to sort of say, this is for real. This is this is legit uh, that these guys are have this type of enthusiasm on a local level.
0: And, you know, what a great way for a band to woodshed, you know, test their strengths, find out what works, what doesn't work. It's certainly a message to all the bands out there. Is there anything around similar these days or are these things just a, a thing of the past?
1: You know, I, I think the thing is with backyard parties is that it's just not feasible to have that type of thing go on. I think we were, it was kind of a moment there was a bunch of factors that came together. First of all, you had the, the Woodstock phenomenon where you had everything from Altamont to Woodstock to all the festivals that went on up, up north in San Francisco, there was sort of a, a sense that this was a thing to do if you liked rock music, was to go to a festival and kind of come together with a huge group of people. And what ended up happening actually in Pasadena was that you had a couple of communities, particularly uh, like San Marino, which was a very wealthy community, buttressed against Pasadena, where there were these huge houses and these kids had these parties and they had space. It was, you know, a couple of football fields in size. Some of these backyards, I mean, they were crazy big, some of these backyards, because these were mansions. And so you have this Woodstock mentality and yet that people who want to put on these um, parties with their friends, you also have the, the sort of social permission of, you know, teenage drinking, drinking and driving. It was, you know, kind of the days and Confused era was not quite of looked upon with the same sort of hostility uh, necessarily that would have be in, in later decades. And so there was a, a little bit less of a, a police, a policing of that kind of behavior. And so there was sort of a, a w- ability to get away with this to some degree.
0: Yeah, it's possible, too, that maybe parents just got wise to all of this when they went away and they'd come back and their place was trash. So but it, it, so in a nutshell, uh, Red Ball Jet, that was David Lee Ross' band, right? And Mammoth was Eddie and Alex's band. And they were very competitive and played against each other, so to speak. And suddenly Ross says he wants in with the brothers, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm proudest of about the book is that I did— dig so deep with Red Ball Jet. Uh, now Red Ball Jet is obviously a tiny, tiny footnote in rock and roll history. This was Roth's band. When I looked at this band and I talked to interviewing three of the guys who were in the band with Roth, you kind of could see a lot of Roth's ideas that he would bring to the table in the 80s as Van Halen got bigger were ones he wanted to do in 1972, 73 in high school. Great stories about Red Ball Jet was they tried to audition at this nightclub in Hollywood and, and Roth wanted the guys to do sort of Motown Step, sort of like you know uh, Wilson Pickett's brass section would do. He wanted him to do this. And so... You had this funky Rolling Stone style. Again, these are high school kids. Let's keep this in perspective. With David Lee Ross singing nonetheless, competing for backyard party gigs with a band called Mammoth, which was Eddie, Alex, and a bassist called Mark Stone. Eddie and Alex were cut from very different musical cloth than Roth in a lot of ways. They were much more into Black Sabbath, kind of the proggy, heavy metal, Captain Beyond. They would play uh, you know, some Zeppelin, some Who, but they were much more interested in sort of straightforward, heavy metal, hard rock at the time, where Roth had much more of a black latino influences you know more santana that type of thing that roth was more into and so there was these different types of vibes and of course the other thing the van halen brothers had was they were far superior musicians than anything that red ball jet had so it was a very different type of thing but yes they had this competition eventually red ball jet sort of fell apart and roth was looking for a a, another band and he saw the van halen brothers and just gravitated to them like a, a moth to the flame he wanted to partner with those guys because he could see the musical talent
0: but he failed a couple of auditions initially, didn't he?
1: He did. Uh, the uh, thing that I really took away from more than anything else about writing Van Halen Rising was how hard Roth worked to get himself in a position where he could become a rock star when that was his dream. Roth would, be, would tell you himself he's not a natural singer. He was never a guy who was going to be an Ian Gillen, for example, or a Robert Plant. He just doesn't have that type of vocal talent. And yes, the first couple of times he auditioned for the brothers, they turned him down. Uh, and kind of took lee in turning him down, kind of, this guy sucks, he's no good, he's a weirdo, that type of thing. But eventually, partially because Roth was uh, very savvy in how he presented himself to those guys, and eventually because they saw that they needed a lead singer, and hey, look, Roth has some definite lead singer qualities they could see that were, were good. He brought girls around, he knew how to get a crowd going, he was an outgoing extrovert, where Eddie and Alex were definitely not like that naturally. So they sort of I think kind of over overlooked some of the other issues just decide that yes Roth has a PA system as we all famously know that was one of the incentives that Roth offered he's like I had this PA system you guys need it but also that Roth was a person who could who could take the front man role away from Eddie Van Halen who was singing who was a guy who was so shy people would tell me that he had this long hair at the time that he would actually a lot of times just sing and his hair would sort of hang down in front of his face he'd be singing to the microphone and, you know, wouldn't even push his hair out of his face because it sort of that was, the, you know, the, kind of a barrier almost like he didn't, you know, he was very shy and was not comfortable performing to any real extent. So he just kind of went into himself when he played, which was not something that would be engaging necessarily in the way that Roth was engaging.
0: And after Roth joined the band, they started to do other kind of unique gigs. You know, they you write about they played for free on the steps of the Pasadena City Hall, famously hosting wet T-shirt contests and dive bars. So. My question is, how do these radically different gigs and then the backyard parties help shape the band?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that really worked for those guys and, and I think worked for a lot of the bands of the era who were out there working as working bands was that they had to play a lot of, first of all, top 40 to so be able to play in clubs at the time. You couldn't go in there and play uh, in a God of the for, for 45 minutes at a nightclub. You had to play the hits of the day. So you were in a situation where you had to learn everything from ZZ Top to Motown to anything that was on the charts that people liked. You had to learn how to do it. And so what these guys ended up doing was they would play everything from biker bars where they would play, you know, more like Foghat and stuff like that, where they would pl- uh, go to other places in town where they had to play, again, a much more straightforward 70s, top 40 stuff. And I think what that really did beyond those guys building up their chops, I think it was a unbelievable opportunity to learn what makes for a hit song when you sit there and you're playing number one hit after top 10 hit in front of crowds i think you as songwriters you start to go oh this is how you build a hit this is what a great song is so you're playing the beatles you're playing Led Zeppelin, you're playing all of these bands from a whole range of different genres that from pop to harder rock where people kind of go wow this is great i love dancing to this But at the same time as a musician you're learning what you need to do and so I look ahead to nineteen seventy-seven and working with Ted Templeman, who was a guy who was a had a very successful tracker and as a producer and knew how to craft hits, those guys had already kind of figured out how to take their hard rock sound and make it poppy, which is what Van Halen one really was, taking the, the heavier parts of heavy metal, the solos, the deep purple screams, to the Richie Blackmore solos for lack of a better term, to the Black Sabbath riffs and, and making it something that could be played on the radio that was catchy, like Feel Your Love Tonight, which has basically like Beach Boys harmonies to it. So, I mean, that to me, playing all those different things, you could learn how to appeal to different crowds, but also they just learned. The repertoire was upwards of 200 songs. I mean, you definitely going to learn a lot about songwriting when you, when you have to know how to play 200 songs.
0: And, of course, uh, there's probably not a better suited uh, MC for wet t-shirt contests than David Lee Roth. I think uh, that formed his personality as well.
1: That was one of the... the most fun parts of the book for me to write as well. I actually ended up interviewing the guy who owned this club, which was called, uh, long since gone. It was uh, in Van Nuys, California, called the Rock Corporation. It was it was in a, kind of an industrial, seedy neighborhood of Van Nuys. The, basically, the deal was they were not making enough money to keep the club going. The, the club owner and one of the guys had been to you know some sort of party or something, and or uh, and, see, and hadn't seen a wet t-shirt contest. And one of the guys who worked for him was like, we should do this. And the guy was like, kind of desperate. And he was like, okay. And uh, it went on for a few weeks until uh, it was busted. But yes, Roth absolutely reveled in this. And again, this is one of those things that, to at the time, I think, when you have a guy like Roth, you can just naturally fall into that role and could have understood that, hey, this is perfect, perfect publicity for our band, basically, like, he, they jumped the chance to do this. I mean, some bands might have been like, nah, we don't, whatever, don't want to do that. But those guys actually jumped at the chance to do something like that, to be around all these bikers, which was at times, from what I Understood from reading interviews with those guys. Not the most comfortable situation, as Alex Van Halen famously said, you know, like, basically, like, if you don't play this song again, I'm going to wrap a chain around your neck while you play the drums, and then you're going to play the song. It's, it's you know, it's, you know, these, the, the crowds were intimidating and they were rough, and, and these guys yet kind of reveled in it and said, yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely play for a crowd full of Hells Angels in a wet t shirt contest in a, in a bad neighborhood in, in Van Nuys.
0: And then they move up to Gazari's, which they were the house band at on Sunset Strip. And,
1: and that, that was sort of out of
0: fashion at the time, I think. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So the thing about Cazares is that uh, as a child of the 80s, I heard a lot about Cazares from bands like Warrant and Poison and these other bands that would play there. And it, it, you know, it was sort of a, a landmark at that point for 80s glam metal, for lack of a better term. And uh, at the time, though, in the 70s, Gazaris had sort of passe. In the late 60s, it was, uh, you know, something that would be like TV shows filmed at Gazaris It was a place where you would have the Gazaris dancers. It was sort of this go-go dancing place. But by 73, 74, it was, I wouldn't say it died, but it was a place that you, if you were a real band that was trying to get somewhere, you wouldn't play there because it was a dead end. You could only play covers at Gazaris You couldn't really play original music. And so no... Uh, record company executive was going to go to Gazari's and go hey these guys play easy top or they play whatever they you know they're doing a really a really amazing job playing this uh, BTO song so I'm going to sign them to a record deal you know it was it was not a place where you could showcase your your originals which was got you a record deal so it was sort of seen at this you know you got paid almost nothing down the block from the whiskey but it was worlds away from a place where the biggest bands in the world would play at the whiskey when they would come to LA whereas bands like Gazari's you just walked three blocks away it was like another planet where your, these bands were going nowhere
0: And they do finally make the whiskey, and that's a stop that every band has to make on their way up. And it's right about this time that they start getting some notice from Rodney Bingenheimer, the legendary club owner, and then members of the all-girl group. Runaways were were big fans.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that was really important also to think about with Roth. I mean, uh, you know, the band was great, so the music kind of spoke for itself, but I think Roth was a guy who knew how to work these people. He He was the guy who... I think was kind of instrumental in getting Rodney Bingenheimer interested kind of talking to Rodney. I know it was because Rodney talked about it, that basically Rodney actually saw them at Ghazari's and was like, these guys are pretty good. And he's like, you know, kind of talked to them after the show. He's like, you know, hey, you guys, you have any original songs? Like, I liked your, your band. And Roth talked to them. And eventually Bingenheimer was the guy who got them an audition at the Starwood, the infamous Starwood Club, which is, again, a place where you could play original music but and was a step up from Gazari's but still wasn't the whiskey. And then later... The thing I love about the story with Bingenheimer is that when Gene Simmons tries to get Van Halen a record deal and is unsuccessful, Van Halen has to come back to L.A. from New York with a tail between their legs, basically saying, hey, Gene Simmons didn't get us a deal and he's the biggest rock star in America. But uh, Rodney Bingenheimer had Van Halen on the radio, excuse me, had Roth on the radio playing the demo for Running With The Devil. And if you listen on YouTube to the, the clip of that, that radio conversation, someone recorded it roth doesn't you know roth doesn't talk about it they didn't get a record deal it's like we got this demo we went to new york and recorded this demo and kind of and rodney's like oh yeah you know rodney type guy and you know rock kind of, kind of used his charisma and his ability to sort of be the rock star before he really was a rock star to get rodney engaged and to rodney's credit rodney saw the talent
0: and that was uh, the kiss manager bill a right who you're talking about that turned them down
1: right so famously the story is that bill a saw those guys in new york basically gene simmons did a demo tape with them. He wanted to sign them to, correctly, Gene's plan was he wanted to do a kind of a Kiss subsidiary label, much like the Beatles at Apple. He wanted the Kiss, the Kiss to have a, a record label where they would have bands on this label and they would they would take a cut of it. So he brought them to New York and he showed them to Bill a coin and they auditioned at SIR Studios in New York City on Kiss's equipment. So Eddie's trying to play through Ace's guitar rig. Alex is trying to play through Peter's drums and it didn't go particularly well. They were out of their element. And so the, the story continues the next day or two. Al- coin said, well, come in and see me. And then basically said, hey, you guys have no commercial potential. Uh, you know, hey, maybe Eddie and Alex could do something with you guys. You guys seem to have some some musical ability. But Dave, I mean, you know, I just don't don't see think you're any good, basically. Basically, in front of all of those guys in his Madison Avenue office told the band, yeah, Roth's kind of the weak link. I mean, he was very honest, apparently brutally honest, and you can imagine how rough that was for Roth. Yeah, that was uh, November of 1976, and then February of 1977, Ted Templeman sees them at the Starwood, and the rest is history. They get a record deal with Warner Brothers. So just
0: But Simmons' motives weren't entirely pure either, right? He had the brothers play on Love Gun, was it, or Christine 16, without David Lee Roth, and there's rumors that that is them on the finished track, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so Gene has released the uh, finished track on, on the box set. I've actually heard them, and I think that the rumor can be put to rest, which was something that was whispered about by people who were in Van Halen's camp who saw the session and basically then later heard the recordings. I think maybe the Eddie solo ended up on the record, meaning Love Gun, but it's, it's not. It's a different solo. But nonetheless, yes. Yeah, so after Gene comes back from touring with kiss and this is april 1977 van halen already has a record deal with warner brothers gene calls up eddie and alex and says hey would you guys play on some demos i'm going to be at village recorder studios in la here would you come and play on the demos and they do roth who was always extremely suspicious of the fact i mean basically from the get-go once gene was sort of still calling eddie and alex was very suspicious that he wanted to steal those guys away Kiss or something, which I kind of find not plausible. But nonetheless, I, I can understand why rock would be worried that someone was going to try to take those guys away from him. You know, his motives may not have been totally pure, but I don't I don't I don't think in 1977 when Kiss is the biggest band in the world that Gene and Paul were going to like, we'll put these two unknown guys in the band. And
0: yeah, that would come much later when Kiss would do that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love about your book, as far as rock prototypes or even stereotypes go, I don't know if you could craft A better lead singer than David Lee Roth, a better frontman, or a a better lead guitarist is Eddie Van Halen. They were just perfect, you know, and they obviously grew into that role. In your book, obviously, which is a prehistory, very, very early on, you could see those characteristics of those two in particular.
1: Yeah, and I think the thing, too, as a rock historian, a fan of Van Halen, I mean, it was always a given that Eddie Van Halen had this enormous talent and that Van Halen never could have been Van Halen without Eddie's guitar playing, and mean, that was kind of a given, but one of the things I thought was really illuminating as I did the interviews was I talked to people who were, I mean, right there when this was going on, people who were friends with Roth, who, who threw back air parties, who hung out with these guys at, after high school, 76, 75, and talked about how Roth was, continually trying to get Eddie to kind of get out of a shell. One of those great stories I loved was uh, one of the guys who hung around Roth all the time talked about how Eddie was, I guess, famous for cutting his own hair. You know, they sort of like this, the Jeff Spicoli uneven haircut, like, you know, just cutting it in the mirror. Those guys didn't have a lot of money. And so they would cut their own hair. And so Roth eventually got Eddie to go get a haircut at a salon. I guess this was like a huge huge deal that Eddie was going to do this. And so Roth prepped all the guys in the circle of friends to be like, when Eddie comes around, be sure you say his hair looks good and be serious. And like all those guys are like, oh, you look great. Like kind of trying to get them to kind of take on that rock star identity from moving on stage. Roth would talk to, how to get those guys to move. I mean, Eddie would stand stock still not moving. He's like, you got to move, you got to jump. You got to, you know, got to, the music has to sound like it looks. We need you guys, meaning Michael and Eddie to be more frenetic on stage and got Eddie to do that. And so, to me, yeah, I mean, Rock sort of grew into the role, but I think Roth from the start had sort of had the vision for what he wanted Van Halen to be like in some sense, where I think Eddie had to be brought along to what we saw in 1978 and later with the, with the incredible stage shows and the, just the, the athletic type of performance that they would put on.
0: There's a great quote in your book, and it's obviously a very deeply researched book, but there's a guy who recalls seeing Eddie play. And the quote was, "I was standing around with a bunch of guitar players while Eddie was playing, and you could tell the guitar players were the ones with their mouths open." And I think that perfectly encapsulates, you know, his skill set at such a young
1: age. And the quote that you read is from Tracy G, who was in Dio in the early '90s, and and. They were a little bit younger than Eddie Van Halen. So they would go to these parties, and go to these clubs and see. And Tracy was great because, you know, had the mind of a guitar player. And we'd be like, yeah, he was like, basically tell me these stories. He would say that he would practice super hard. He said, maybe I've gotten a little bit closer. And then he said he would go to um, the whiskey. And Eddie Van Halen had started using the uh, tremolo bar. Eddie had, had not really used a tremolo bar. It had always been sort of a Les Paul style fixed bridge. And then, <laughs> so Tracy would be like, damn. You know, now he's like doing these incredible things with the whammy bar and Tracy was amazed and so Tracy sort of went back and sort of was practicing more. And then in like a few weeks later, he goes back and sees Eddie's doing the, the, really the eruption style two handed tapping where he's really perfected. it. And, and basically Tracy's like, you're never gonna, I'm never, you know, never gonna catch this guy. It's just that he said that was constantly what it was that Eddie always was kind of pushing, you know, Randy Rhodes, George Lynch, all these guys who were on the scene who were good guitar, very good professional guitar players who went on to, to great success were were gonna be um, a step behind Eddie.
0: I have to say, David Lee Roth, I think, comes across really, really well in your book. Um, much is made of his well-to-do background, but you know, he was out in front promoting the band and, and working on their style and maybe pushing Eddie to be more of a front man. I mean, that guy worked his ass off, didn't he?
1: Yeah, one of the real interesting things about Roth is Roth came from this background where his father purchased the house that Roth lives in now in Pasadena, this 20-room uh, Italianate mansion, which is like a, a basically historic landmark. I mean, it's this incredible house. So you can imagine that Eddie and Alex are living in a two-bedroom house in Pasadena, tiny kind of a galley kitchen. I mean, it would be one of these post-World War II houses that you'd walk into today that people would probably scrape. They'd be like, I don't want to live in this house. It's too, it's too small. Um, and then, you know, they end up with this guy who comes from this incredible privilege in some sort of ways. But yeah, Roth, I mean, again, Roth really got down and did the stuff, I mean, you know, hauling the gear, Roth never set himself apart in that sort of ways. And he deserves a tremendous amount of credit because he put himself, as you said, into the business of promoting and working it without falling back on. Well, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I can just live off my dad for the rest of my life. And Roth really was not going to want to do that. He wanted to make it on his own. And so the other thing I would say, of course, is that the house itself was advantageous because it gave those guys a place to practice. So, they woodshedded and wrote songs in the basement, and told by a number of people, from Pete Angelus, who was Roth's right hand man in his solo career and had been with Van Halen since 1977, that you could go in the house there in Pasadena and be standing in the kitchen. This is Roth's mansion, and you could barely hear what was going on in the basement. the, the basement was so like densely concreted. the roof was, you know, that had like a concrete roof and a concrete floor, so it was like almost like a, a crypt down there. So it was, you know, a place where you could practice around the clock, and those guys had this workspace where they could really do that, along with the you know, the fact that they had a guy like Roth who, again, was right there with those guys willing to work.
0: The last David Lee Roth story, your book is full of them, and um, you know, they say payback is a bitch, and I know that Van Halen, after they got huge, David Lee Roth got a little bit of payback on Simmons regarding backstage passes.
1: One of the things that uh, comes full circle is that, I believe in August 1977, if I remember correctly, Kiss is playing at the Forum with Cheap Trick, and this is the peak kiss moment. So very hard to get tickets. Gene, to say thank you to Van Halen, says, I've left tickets for you guys. Kind of passes the word to Eddie and Alex. So tickets, come on down. So Eddie and Alex bring their dates, and Roth went down to the Forum. And then supposedly the story is there were tickets left for some of the guys in Van Halen, but not for Roth. Basically, they're like, no, there's no ticket with it. an envelope that says David Lee Roth on it. So, 1977, So Roth sulks away, obviously, from the Forum, humiliated. And so 1984 rolls around. And Van Halen is coming to the forum. This is now Van Halen is the biggest band in the world and Kiss is sort of an also ran in the world of rock. And so I guess Roth called Gene's office, Hey, if you want, come on down to the come on down to the forum. I got tickets for you. You know, come down or whatever, I'll let you in. And so Gene went down there and uh when Gene got there there were no tickets for Gene Simmons. So that was the that was the payback. Yeah. Classic.
0: Classic. Well, his book is Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. I'd like to thank Greg Ranoff for showing up and fill us in on these stories. This is the book that Van Halen fans want to read. Uh, I've read it. Uh, You may think, well, it ends right when I want to know about all the good stuff. This is the good stuff. It's a great book. Great job, Greg, and thanks for coming on.
1: Hey, no problem. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Well, thanks for going backwards in time with us for this episode of In Case You Missed It. We're going to try and keep this going every other week. And don't forget, if your app only shows you 20 episodes or so at a time, check out our brand new mobile friendly website, allmusicpodcast.com, where all of our shows are instantly available at your fingertips.